0: In the business, I look at it as my legacy. I spent my life working here. I've tried to impart some uh, values that are important to me. And I wanted to make sure that the people who helped me grow it, the the people out in the shop and in the office, were taken care of.
1: This is SWARFCAST. I'm Noah Graff, here with my co-host, Lloyd Graff. On today's podcast, we're talking with Ken Mandiel of SwissTurn. Over the course of his career, Ken has built a successful Swiss machining company in Oxford, Massachusetts. A few years ago, Ken turned down several private buyout offers from private equity firms. However, currently, he's in the process of restructuring his company to transfer ownership and management to his employees. including Index, Schütte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.grafpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. We are here with Ken Mandiel of Swiss Turn. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you. Glad to be here. Just to get started, uh, you are are the owner of Swiss
0: Turn, yes? Yes. Uh, Right now I'm just a partial owner. I had been uh, the sole owner up until three years ago. Okay.
1: And then uh, what happened three years ago?
0: And then uh, I sold 30% of the company of my stock to uh, an employee uh, stock ownership plan. An ESOP. An ESOP. And then last year I sold another 19%. So uh, as of now I own 51% and the ESOP owns 49%. And I hope in the next two or three years uh, to sell the balance to the employee plan interesting
1: okay we're definitely gonna get into that uh, as we go on
0: hi
2: this is Lloyd Graff. can I'd like to ask you about uh, the origins of the company uh, how did you get in business uh, how did you start in the machining realm
1: and what first mainly what is Swiss tech Swiss turn my 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 fault what is Swiss turn uh, specialize in I know you guys do a whole bunch of different sectors right
0: well yeah we're a cnc swiss screw machine job shop we're in oxford mass um, we specialize in uh, higher volume uh, precision turn parts uh, we we have a, a, a our machines are all uh, stars star cncs and we so we run lights out a lot so we we primarily look for longer running jobs, but we do, we'll do the whole range of jobs even. Uh, we'll run prototype quantities. Um, but we, we try to go 5,000, 10,000. We have some jobs that run into the millions. Uh, a lot of brass, uh, copper, stainless steel, aluminum, and some plastics.
2: I'd like to ask you, you brought up uh, running lights out. Are you successful in running lights out?
0: Uh, we are on certain jobs there are some jobs we know up front that they're not going to run very well lights out so we'll, we'll shut them off at night we run two shifts so the night shift goes home around 1 a.m the day shift comes in around 6 a.m so, the, so we've got about five hours of lights out operation and then on the weekends are we usually are staffed on Saturday mornings till 11 and then and then the employees go home but we do have people scheduled to come in uh, various periods uh, over the rest of the weekend just to check on the machines, shut them down if there is an issue, or restock them if, it need, if they need restocking. But uh, it's been a very, uh, very successful model for us. How long have you been running with lights out? Oh, I would say 15 years or more, 20 years. Really? Have you had any accidents? We've had oil uh, spill because uh, a machine didn't uh, get clogged up, and so it didn't drain properly. It's not uncommon for the machine to make bad parts during the night. Something can go wrong. But the machine time is more valuable than the raw material that we're running, so it's Mm. worth it to us to take a chance. I see. Interesting. Uh, We run a lot of brass and and, uh, easier stainless steel jobs, so um, brass we tend not to have trouble with is more forgiving yeah if we were running 316 stainless uh or titanium we would shut the machine off we wouldn't we wouldn't try to get any uh lights out time on, on the tougher materials
2: okay if you would Ken, could you start from the beginning of uh where you grew up and how you got into this uh you say your grandparents were from italy were your parents also from italy
0: no, no. My, both my parents were born here. Uh, my father was trained at the Waltham Watch School in Waltham, Mass. At the time, that was you know, the world leader in watchmaking. And um, he had the bad fortune of graduating from the watch school as the watch factory was closing down. And he went to work for one of his teachers who had a, a, a Swiss screw machine job shop. And that was uh, all the way back in 1950. And then around 1969, he decided to start his own business just with a couple of old uh, uh, cam operated Swiss. That's all there was back then. And uh, so I was around 10 years old at the time. And I started working there at that time, just um, cleaning parts or sorting parts you know, separating them from the chips, whatever needed to be done. And I would go up after school. Uh, the company grew, added more machines. By the time I was uh, in my early teens, I was operating the cam machines. And probably by the time I was around 15, I was able to, to do some simple setups.
1: Were you enjoying coming in when you were young?
0: I did. I love I loved doing it. I, I look forward to it. Uh, I learned a lot. I, and I earned twenty-five cents an hour, <laughs> so it was worthwhile.
2: What was the fascination about the Cam uh, Swiss machines?
0: To me, they're they're fascinating. I, I think more so than the than the CNC machines of today. They're they're just amazing mechanisms. Um, I, I wish we've gotten rid of all of our cam machines, but I, I wish we had saved a couple mm-hmm. uh, just to have on hand because they're they're really quite something to watch. It's, at least I'm I'm always amazed by we them. We can
1: probably find you one. We <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm people, sure there. <laughs> people offer offer them to us sometimes.
0: Yeah, they're, and they're hopefully they're not trying to retire on the money that they're going to get for them. Yeah. <laughs> what did
2: you find so amazing about them?
0: Just the, the the complexity of them, um, and it was you know they were they were a challenge to to set up and to keep running. Uh, it was a lot of playing around with the timing and adjusting the bushings just right, and it was I was just amazed at the it was they are quite a marvel of of mechanical design and. and to the fact that they lasted so long, and and even today people are still running them, um, and and the, the technology is the same as it as it existed a hundred years ago. I have a machine sitting here in my office from 1892 <laughs> wow. that came out of the Waltham Watch. Actually, came out of uh, came out of the Waltham Watch Factory. It was one based on the the first screw machine. That the Watch Factory had it was a, a Vanderwood screw machine. It's a benchtop machine that makes miniature screws. And the first one, the first machines, I believe, were built around 1870. Mm-hmm. And in 1983, or in the early 80s, I saw one of these machines still in operation doing production work. At the old Waltham Watch Factory. Ah, fascinating. And, uh, there, there, there's one in the Smithsonian, and this one is in bad shape and, and not not operating. But I always uh, dreamed of of putting it back together and getting it running again.
2: <laughs> Do you think it's given you a real advantage to have grown up on the uh, mechanical machines?
0: I think so. I think uh, that I had opportunities that my children didn't have. The times changed. It wasn't so easy for me to, to, you know, with the laws and regulations. Uh, When my kids were 12 years old, I couldn't put them out on the machines to learn the way I did. Um, It just just wasn't possible anymore. And uh, so I I think I did have a, a real advantage growing up in the business when i did did any of your children
2: have any interest in coming into the shop
0: no no and i think that's because they didn't have that same opportunity they did all work here at some point when they were older but they they just didn't have the opportunity to to get it in the blood their blood the way i did
2: ah that's fascinating so anyway you started your business in 87
1: so you were working with your father first with his business
0: yeah well it's all it, it's a successor business so uh, around um 1981 i went i had graduated from college and uh went to work elsewhere for a year and a half and then uh he he needed some help so i came in in the early 80s and um In 1987, we reorganized as Swiss Turn, and um, we've done very well since then. I bought my father out in uh, 1997, so I've owned the company myself for for a little over 20 years.
1: Why did you go uh, work somewhere else first? Was that kind of part of the plan, or what, what happened there?
0: Not really. I, you know, I, I did really didn't have a plan when I was 21 years old. So I had gone to engineering school, and I, I went to work uh, as an engineer uh, for a, a military contractor, and I could put up with that for a year and a half. It, it was a lot different working for a large corporation um, on a on a defense contract than uh I'm working in a small shop making things every day. But
1: if you loved it, then
0: why didn't you just go into it right away? Um I don't know. I think I wanted to try something else. Mm-hmm. And I I just wasn't thinking forward, you know I, Even, you know, today I I agonize over what my kids' plans are, but I I think that you know, they're they're all in their early 20s and I I probably didn't have any any firm plans or vision of my future when i was that age so um i just didn't think it through i guess uh, tell me about your business now
1: and how it evolved from then until now
0: all right uh, well in the in the late 80s we moved out of waltham uh where we had been for almost 20 years uh and we moved to another industrial town uh further to the west uh, called whitensville which was at one point the uh was a, a mill town. Uh, White and Machine Works made uh, weaving equipment, textile equipment, and uh, they had they had moved out of town. So there there was a lot of skilled he- labor available. So we moved there. Uh, we we spent about 15 years there, and at that time, by that time, we had started to purchase the stars and unlike the older cncs that we started with the stars were much faster than the technology had changed and on the in the old mill building they would bounce around on the floors and we would see premature um, wear of the ball screws we had to slow the machines down and so in 2003 we moved to our own building uh, where we had concrete floors and lots of space and then we outgrew that facility in about 10 years we moved in into the current building in 2013. And we've actually outgrown this building already five years later. And so we're, we're looking at putting on a, an addition later this year. Wow.
2: Oh That's great. That's a great story. And I understand uh, that your wife has worked with you also.
0: She she worked uh, as our accountant controller for many years. Uh, she retired about three years ago. And what was that like working with your wife? Oh, it was good. Um, and she had a brought a, a different perspective because she didn't grow up in the business, so uh, she was able to um, question us on some of the things that that we were doing and and move us forward. And she was key in in helping us become uh, ISO registered she was only she was only part time because we she was her main job was raising our children.
2: Mhm. Was it difficult to take it home and both of you being involved in it?
0: I don't I don't think so. I th- I think she was uh you know proud of what we were doing here. We 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 uh we made changes. It it's amazing that when when I look back at what we were like in in the 20 years ago and where we are today. Um, but these changes are, are all gradual. Uh, but we always move forward and just made small, small improvements every day. And that's still what we try to do.
1: Listeners, do you have an idea for a future episode of Swarfcast? Or is your company interested in advertising on the Swarfcast podcast? If so, please send us an email. At swarfcastpodcast at gmail dot com. That's swarfcastpodcast at gmail dot com. Would you consider yourself a student of business?
0: I think so. I, I try to look at what's going on in the industry and, and try to stay up with uh, uh, trends, and especially when it comes to things like. Um, uh, Employee involvement, um, and, and that's a big factor with the ESOP. How we treat our employees as partners. Okay, well, for for people
1: out there that aren't that familiar with ESOPs, you uh, give us give us the the breakdown of what an ESOP is and why you would do it, and in what form your company did it.
0: Okay. All right. So uh, let me start with, uh, I just turned 60 and s- several years ago I could see that at, at some point I was going to need to retire and my children were not in the business. And so I had to think about what am I going to do with this business? It, it, in the business, I, I look at it as my legacy. I spent my life working here. Uh, I've tried to impart some uh, values that are important to me. And I wanted to make sure that the people who helped me grow it, the the people out in the shop and in the office, were taken care of. And so I had I I talked to private equity firms, I talked to competitors, uh, I had a couple of very uh, lucrative offers to sell the business, um, but I was always uncomfortable that. The, the values that, that we've imparted, that we've, we've nurtured here, are, wouldn't be carried on. And um, I've seen enough businesses purchased by, particularly by private equity groups that were not uh, the same company within a short period of, of when they were bought. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to protect that, protect my legacy. And so I, I uh, there was another uh, company in the area, another small machine shop that that was a, an ESOP. and I had been talking to the former owner of that company for probably for 20 years about maybe not that long 10, 10 or fifteen years about his experience as an owner selling to an ESOP. and I, I was always intrigued by it. and uh, so. Um as I learned about it, I, I decided that this was the way to go.
2: Uh, walk us through the process.
0: Okay. Um, it, first of all, it's very complex, and I'm still learning about it now, even we're three or four years into it. I'm always learning something new about it. Um, what happens is uh, there's a trust formed that will hold the stock for the, for the employees, So I sell my stock to the trust. The problem is the trust has no money to pay for my stock and I need to get paid. So the company loans the trust the money. So there's a loan from the company to the trust. Then the trust buys my stock. Now in the first round, the the company didn't have the money either to, to buy my stock, to loan to the trust. So... The company took a loan from the bank.
1: Does the company ever have the money?
0: Yes. I guess if they have
1: a ton of cash, then they have the money.
0: Yes, and then they'll loan it to the trust, and then the trust will buy the stock. When the company gives the trust the money, it is only a loan. And uh, in our case, it's a 10-year loan. So each year, the trust has to make a loan payment. Again, they don't have any money of their own. So what happens is the company makes a contribution to the to the ESOP. So uh, let's say it's, um, I'll I'll use some some small numbers. Let's say the loan payment is $1,000. So the company makes a $1,000 contribution to the trust. The trust then immediately pays that money back to the company as a loan payment. When that payment is made, part of the stock is released to the employee accounts. The, The stock is held by the trust and cannot be given to the employees until it's paid for. So as long as that loan is outstanding, uh, the, the stock is held. But it's, 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 we know how quickly it will get paid down. And so over a period of about 10 years, all of the stock will get released to the employees, all of the initial portion. Some of it will come back to the company or to the trust because it will get forfeited when people leave if they haven't um, uh, vested.
1: Well, when when the people retire, they get they get some of the equity in the company. They get to take take home something.
0: Yeah, So when they retire, when they turn in sixty five is considered the retirement age. If they retire, if they're disabled or if they die, they uh, they can be. Begin uh, selling their stock, so it can be done in one of two ways: either the trust can buy the stock back, or the or the company can buy the stock. And so, when they retire, the the payments are done over a five-year period.
2: How have you, um, Ken? How have you worked as far as dividing uh, the uh, shares up? Um, do a few key employees have a significantly larger piece of the ownership?
0: No. It, well, it, it's all based on on income, so it's divided up proportional to their share of the total payroll. So, if, if the higher paid employees do get a, more shares, uh huh.
2: Is it? Have you found it useful as far as recruitment goes or neutral or negative?
0: I I think uh, we always promote it as a benefit, and it is a a large benefit. Uh, We've only had it for, I think we're coming into our third year of, yeah, this will be our, in in around April, uh, the employees will learn what the value of their accounts are. The one thing that happens with an ESOP is you have to value the stock every year as of December 31st so that you can tell the employees what their stock is worth. And also, if, if someone has left, they'll know how much they're getting paid for it. Okay, so you're going to value
1: the stock from 2018. What what does that mean? I mean, it's not like it's not like following the stock on the web. No, you know, it goes up and down every day. I mean, that's what most people think when they hear stocks. So, I'm trying to get a concrete idea in my head.
0: Okay, the other there's one other piece of the puzzle here, and that's the the trustee. There is a outside trustee who represents the interest of the employees. So when I sold my stock to the ESOP. I had to hire a trustee and negotiate the value of the stock with the trustee. It, it's kind of a bizarre setup, but that's how it works. So.
1: And the value is based on sales, it's based on debt, it's based
0: on... Uh, that. It's based on the values of other companies that have sold, it's based on the value of public companies, um, it's based on the assets... Uh, so the, there's a lot of factors that go into it. When when we get the valuation, that what so I, what I was going to say is, the 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 there's a trustee to represent the employees. The trustee then hires a valuation firm. Every year, the valuation firm does the independent valuation of of the company, and uh, it, it, they take the um, the value of the company, and they subtract the debt to come up with an equity value for this stock. And that will come around, around April, early April, we should have the value for last year, for 2018. And at that point, we can do statements for the employees and let them know how much uh, their stock is worth.
2: Uh, You had told me that, what, after the first year, you're Supposed value of the company had risen a significant amount?
0: Yeah, in the first year between the um, dividends that the distributions that they received and the increase in the stock value, it was around 51% return they had.
2: That's pretty fantastic.
0: Yeah, it, it, and an inter- interesting thing about the way the stock is released, it's always released when we make the contribution, it's released. Um, at its original purchase price. So 10 years from now, when the last payment is made, uh, the amount released is, is related to the amount that was originally paid for it, but obviously in that 10 years, the value should have risen significantly.
2: Uh, do you have full rights as far as uh, making policy and setting wages?
0: I I do. I do, and and, uh, so as of now, I'm I'm 51% owner, so I do retain control, but um, I also uh, uh, chose an outside board of directors, so I maintain control over the company. Uh, So when you give up more of
2: your stock, will that reduce your control?
0: Indirectly, they'll still they'll be an outside board of directors, but uh, re- in reality, I'm the one choosing the board of directors. Uh huh. Um, you know, di- directing the, you know, the the trustee uh, has to approve it, and as long as I'm making a good choices, the. Um,
2: how has the, excuse me, how is the take-home pay of, uh, the average quote-unquote employee. Been affected by the ESOP?
1: Yeah, say uh, a machinist or
0: the take-home pay. Uh, in general, for ESOP companies, ESOP employees tend to earn. Um, I can't. I can't remember the number, but there is a more or less. Let me see. More, much more. So, in, it, so ESOP employees tend to be paid much more than non-ESOP employees. They tend to have uh, much larger uh, retirement savings. Uh, On top of the ESOP, we also have a 401k that the company contributes to significantly. We had that before the ESOP, and that continues. Would you call the ESOP
2: a deterrent for people to leave the company?
0: I think so. (laughs) When we first announced this, uh, we had a, a... Employee luncheon, and we explained the whole how the whole thing worked. Yeah, how did people react to that? uh very well. I think they were somewhat surprised. They had no idea it was coming. Did most people know what an ESOP was? I think some of them had heard of it, but didn't quite know how it worked. but I heard back one one of the employees came in and said um, that they another employee was complaining about the ESOP and said, this sucks. Now I can never leave. Because, <laughs> eh.
2: So are these golden handcuffs?
0: Not, not quite. I mean, they, they can leave. And if they leave, they still have their stock. Oh, they still have the stock if they leave. Well, once they're, they, they have whatever, their vest, whatever is vested, this is a six-year vesting period. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, okay, so after six years, if they leave, they keep stock. They keep it all right. But each year they, the vesting goes up. So after the first year, they, they're 20 percent vested in the second year, 40 percent. Um, when they leave, the payout is handled differently, though, uh, whereas when if you leave because you're retired, you can start your payments almost right away as soon as the, the valuation is done. So if you retire, you have to wait until the end of the year and then a few months after that for the value to be done, the valuation to be done, so that we know how much to start paying. If you quit or if you're fired, uh, you have to wait five years for those payments to start. And then there's another five, the payout is over another five years. So there's, there's not an incentive to leave if if you've accumulated $100,000 in employees, employer stock and you think you're going to quit and buy a fancy car, it doesn't work that way. You, you have to, you're not getting anything for the first five years. And then you, the rest of it is... Then it's paid out over an additional five years because you don't want to create a, an incentive for people to accumulate a lot and then quit to collect yes. their money. Mm-hmm. yes.
2: And tax benefits or... Or disabilities.
0: Um, there's for tax benefits for the employees. It's it's the contributions are tax free. Uh, they do pay ordinary income when they finally cash out, but they hadn't paid any taxes to begin with on it. The company gets a a, a deduction on the contribution and on the loan interest payments, and as we're an S corp. The way an S-corp works is the, uh, the profits flow through to the shareholders. As of now, I own 51%, so I have to pay taxes on that 51% of profits. The other 49% is owned by the ESOP, which is a non-taxable entity. Interesting. So once the company is 100% owned by the ESOP, there won't be any federal taxes because it's a non-taxable entity. The government will get their money eventually, but it will it'll come through the individual employees when they start getting their payments.
2: Thank you very much, Ken. It's
0: yeah, been thank a you, pleasure. Ken.
2: look forward to putting out this uh, podcast, and I hope you will find uh, the podcast in the future worth listening to. Okay.
0: Well, thank you for for having me on. Thanks, Ken. Okay. Bye-bye.
1: Hey, everybody. First, we just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. It boosts our egos, and of course, your ears are the reason we do this. But it would be great if you could subscribe and leave a review, as it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you soon.